It's good to have you here Tuesday night at the mine. We're so glad that you are here. And uh, again, we're going to have a great evening for you. We're going to be in Romans chapter 13. If you're here for the first time, again, we just want you to know that any week you come, each week stands on its own. So you don't have to be here every week uh, to get something out of uh, the messages on Tuesday night. Uh, And we're just so glad that you are here. Uh, We want to encourage you uh, to help us Think of ways that we can uh, sort of fill this place up. Uh, we're, you know, getting verbals on Sunday every once in a while. We're getting announcements. We're in the bulletin, all that kind of stuff. And, of course, word of mouth. But if you have some other ideas, especially as we end this year and head into next year, about how we can get the word out about the mine on Tuesday nights, please let us know. We would love to uh, have your, your thoughts on ways that we can you know, get the word out about the mine, I guess. All right. Um, let's go ahead and pray. And uh, then uh, Seth and the guys are going to come and lead us in worship tonight. Phil and Tim are here with us tonight. And we're glad that they're here. Real quick, too, just as far as calendar goes, we've got through Tuesday, December the 11th. Tuesday, December the 11th is our last mine of this year or this semester. Then we take three weeks off, the Tuesday before Christmas, Christmas, and New Year's, and then we come back and start a new semester next year on January the 8th, studying the book of Ephesians, all right? And we'll be in Ephesians for January, February, March, April, and May. Also, uh, if you're interested, I know it's a ways away, but next summer, we're going to be having another summer Bible study uh, during the summer like we did this year. Yeah, because... Some of you are like, we don't do anything in the summertime. Well, we are going to do that again this year as well. So we'll be letting you know what book we're going to study and all of that and uh, what four weeks out of the summer that will be. All right, let's pray and get the guys up here to lead us in some worship. Especially after Sunday, we ought to be in the mood for worship tonight, right? All right. All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much for the opportunity. Again, we have to be here. We thank you for all you're doing. We thank you, Lord, for just how real you are in our lives. And we do just want to just, Lord, see a revival take place, Lord, within our own lives, within, Lord, the life of the Christian community all across the country. And Lord, may it start right here in Chandler, Arizona, where, Lord, this group of Christians just just begins a movement, Lord, of, of hunger for you and for your word that just is contagious and just spreads all over the valley. We thank you, Lord, for each and every person here tonight. May you just bless us as only you can, and we'll give all the glory to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Oh, what great worship tonight. Amen. Yes. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Appreciate your hearts tonight. You, you are into it, and that's great. And we're glad you're here, and we want to get into the Word tonight, too, because we, we believe the Word of God is, is just so incredible, and it can just speak to our hearts and encourage us and challenge us and just build us up and strengthen us and grow us. And Okay, I'll stop there. <laughs> Romans chapter 13, and coming on the heels of what Seth just sang about, what we just sang about, really cool, um, talking about how his power conquered the grave and how we can have that power available to us. And when you come into chapter 13, the thing that Paul is talking to the Roman Christians about is the authority of God that's granted through certain institutions, one of those being the government. 
And one of the things that we have to keep in mind, though I'm not big on going back and taking a lot of time to go back into the historical background of all of this, that we do have to remind ourselves and remember that the Christians that he was writing to at this time in Rome, telling them to obey the government, were under the Roman emperors that would you know, dip Christians in tar and then stick them on poles and light the whole city of Rome with them because of their faith in Christ. And, and this is the climate in which he's telling these people to obey the government. And so notice here, what, what we're talking though about is a life defined by God throughout the book of Romans. What does a life defined by God look like? If we're just to surrender our life to God and let God take over our life, as we come to Romans chapter 13, one of the things then that we learn is a life defined by God is a life lived under authority. Ultimately, a life lived under God's authority because there is no authority apart from God. And anyone on earth that has authority, it's been delegated to them from God. For Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. And even if a world leader or even if a boss at work doesn't realize that their authority over anyone else actually is coming from God, but but it ultimately does, whether they recognize it or not. And that's why you'll notice in Romans 13 then, Paul says this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. You see, at the end of chapter 12, he talked about giving place to God's wrath and not seeking vengeance and taking vengeance ourselves. And one of the reasons why chapter 12 flows into chapter 13 is because God's wrath can come directly from him or indirectly through the civil government as the executor of his wrath. Human governments are not contrary to God's rule, but they are a part of it. And to curtail a spirit of vengeance, Paul commands believers to obey the government rule of law. Now, there's two extremes when it comes to government. Christians can look at government as evil and, you know, all of that. And that's one extreme. And that's not biblical, obviously, from Romans 13. And then there's the part where they almost look at the government as being the savior to replace looking to God. And that's just as wrong. You see, God can use governments and they can be a tool of his, but they are not to replace God in any way in our lives. And we understand that human governments are run by humans and therefore they are fallible and no human government, even the best of human governments, have a lot of problems. But Paul says that for a Christian, for our life to be defined by God, we've got to learn to live under authority. Whether that authority be in God's institutions of government or the home or church or even at work or whatever, that we've got to learn to live under authority. Why? Because as we see what Paul's going to go on to say here, if I can't live under the authorities that God places before me that I can see, how am I going to live under God's authority that I can't see? And will I really respond to God's authority? And that may be the, that may be the rub right there. Maybe some of you are going, I don't want to live under God's authority. And that is a problem for any human being. Because in a sense, because of our human nature and because of the pull that Satan has in our lives, many times we want to be autonomous. We don't want to be under authority. And it goes even back to Satan. The reason why Satan left heaven 
was because he did not want to be under God's authority. He says, I'll be like the most high. I'm going to call the shots. I'm not willing to be under the direction and the authority of God any longer. And ever since Satan fell, he's been pulling human beings that way too. And that's why, you know, are we going to be autonomous in our life or are we going to be under the authority of God and learn how to be under the authority of God by, by submitting ourselves even to other authorities in our life, whether they're good or not. Again, going back to the government that Paul is telling these Roman Christians to be subject to certainly wasn't godly, certainly wasn't good. But for the sake of Christ, he says, learn to live under that authority. Why? For there is no authority except by God's appointment, and the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Again, living under authority is ordained by God. So the person who resists such authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will incur judgment. God is just simply saying through His Word, we have two choices. We can either submit to God's authority in our life and to the authorities God places over us, or we can resist them and we can fight against them our whole life. And God says, you're going to miss out in your life. You're not going to be as free as you think you're going to be if you don't submit to my authority and to the delegated authorities that I've placed in your life. Because true freedom is found within the boundaries that God places in our lives. Everything that God says to do or not to do really brings about freedom. If I choose not to submit to God's authority, which is what Satan tries to tempt us with, Satan says, you're in bondage by living under God's authority. You you need to break free. And when we live then outside of God's boundary, guess what? We are bound to sin and death. We are bound to those other forces that control us when we live outside of the boundaries of God. God says, you're not free. Jesus Christ is the one who came to set us free, to give us the truth, to live free. And, and true freedom is found within God's authority and within the boundaries that He has set up. Now, The exception, and again, let me just say, there's always exceptions. And these are general principles that God has laid down in His Word, but there's always exceptions to the rule. And the exception for the Christian is when the government orders a believer to disobey God or to renounce Christ. We are to obey the government in every way that does not place one in disobedience to God. In a sense, God is saying, honoring the state honors God. And so we should be good citizens and live by the laws of the land. And if we don't like those laws, then obviously we should seek to change those laws. And if we don't like those who are in authority over us, then let's get them out of office and let's put in people that we do like in office. There's certainly, you know, there there are ways to address and correct abuses of power. And and when we talk about authority, we always have to talk about the fact that with authority always comes abuse of authority. No doubt about it. (laughs) Again, go back to the empire of Rome, talking about the abuse of power and authority. In fact, Jesus, when he came, says... Authority is not something to lord over somebody. It's actually something to be taken in order to serve others. 
Obviously, we know our world has that upside down. But for the sake of Christ, God is saying here, learn to live under authority. And learn to live under the authority of, specifically in Romans 13, a government, unless that government is specifically telling you to do something against what you know God wants you to do. And then, at that instance, as Peter says in the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. Whenever they told the apostles, stop preaching about Jesus, stop telling other people about Jesus, or we're going to throw you into prison, and the apostles kept preaching. Because Jesus told them, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So if they weren't preaching the gospel, then they were disobeying the clear command of Jesus Christ himself. That's the only time God says we have an an exception not to live under the authorities that God has placed into our life. Because God's going to use those authorities, good or bad, to shape us and to strengthen us and to make us the person that God wants us to be. And we've got to trust Him that even those people that He's placing over us that may not be who we think they should be or what we think they should be, that God is still using. And God is the one who's over them. And God is authority over them. And God is on the throne. And if we want to change their heart, we've got to remember Proverbs 22.1 says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And he can turn it however he wants to. And so a lot of times if I have authorities in my life and, and I want to see them change, I appeal to the higher power. I take time to pray and say, God, change their heart. And it's amazing how many times in my life I've had my authorities come back and have a change of heart over something, and I never talked to them about it at all. I talked to my God about it, and He changed their heart. Notice that ultimately God put government here for the suppression of evil and sin. Again, not all governments... But generally speaking, that's why God gave us human government. Notice in verse 3, For rulers cause no fear for good conduct, but for bad. Do you desire not to fear authority? Do good and you will receive its commendation. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be in fear, for it does not bear the sword in vain. It is God's servant to administer retribution on the wrongdoer. God is simply saying that for the most part, if I'm doing what I should be doing as a citizen of the state, I have no fear of retribution, of getting in trouble. If I'm not going over the speed limit, then I don't have to worry about the policeman pulling me over and giving me a ticket, basically. If I am doing something wrong, then I should be afraid because God uses human government in a way as an arm to... Try to suppress evil, sin, and all of that. Now again, it doesn't always work out that way, but for the most part, that's the general principle. A couple of things. First of all, and government doesn't do this well. And and this is a verse actually that my father took me to and said, actually, him and my mom drew a principle out of this even in parenting me. Because even though it's specifically talking about government, he said, we've got to have a balance. And he said, you know, it says here in verse 4 about how government is to be used to administer retribution on the wrongdoer. But notice also, God expects government 
to commend those in verse 3 who are doing good. Well, you know, government spends a lot of time maybe trying to give retribution for those who are doing wrong, but how much time do we spend honoring those and appreciating those who are doing it right? And the reason I bring my parents and, and parenting into it is my dad told me, he says, the way I raised you was I always tried to be conscious of this principle, again, that specifically applied to human government in Romans 13, but he felt it was a good principle for parents, too, that as much as we are our parent, parental authorities in our children's lives to, to discipline them when they do wrong, I should be just as eager to applaud them and to commend them when they do right and to balance it out. And, and we all should be that way. We should be that way in the church. We should be that way in our communities. We should be that way with each other. We're so easy to be critical and to criticize one another and to look at each other and sometimes, you know, the things we don't like about each other. But what about the things that are good and the things that should be commended and the things that should be honored and appreciated and that we should take time to truly appreciate and honor one another? Part of our responsibility and then in verse 5, he goes on to say, Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of the wrath of the authorities, but also because of your conscience. And beginning here, and we're not going to come back to this whole conscience thing until next week in chapter 14, but he's laying a little bit of a groundwork here in chapter 13 by just sort of lobbing that out there. And what he's saying is this. He says, not only should we do right, so that we don't have to fear getting in trouble for not paying our taxes or whatever like that. But we should do what's right because our conscience is going to bother us. And the Bible teaches that we should never, as a Christian, violate our conscience. We should never do something against what our conscience is telling us not to do. Because our conscience is one of those things that God gives every human being, Christian or non-Christian, to try to keep us on the right path. And the more we say yes to our conscience, the better of a barometer it will be, the better of a help we will be. And, but if we begin to say no to our conscience and turn our conscience off, the Bible says we can get to a point with our conscience where our conscience can become seared with a hot iron. Literally, the word in the Greek means it can be cauterized like dead skin that's burned. And like any kind of flesh that's ever been burned in a fire or whatever, it has no feeling to it. You can touch it, but there's nothing there. The Bible says that when you and I say no to our conscience over such a long period of time, our conscience can get to the point where there's no feeling there. That's why people sometimes ask me, you know, how can people do some of the things that they do in our world today, some of the hateful, cruel, criminal things to each other, and it almost seems like they have no feeling about it? I said, you've got to understand, the Bible says that's a possibility. The Bible says that people can turn off their conscience to the point where their conscience is seared. It's cauterized. It's, it's like dead, insensitive skin. So he's laying the groundwork. Don't ever do anything against our conscience. Let our conscience guide us. Now, our conscience is fallible. The Holy Spirit is infallible. So our conscience shouldn't be our only guide as a Christian. We have the Word of God. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. But God would say, please don't just out and out violate your conscience. Don't do anything against 
your conscience. That's not going to be good. You're setting yourself up for something bad. Verse 6. Oh, now we're bringing up a good subject. Paying taxes. You know, this whole tax thing has been around for a long time. I mean, in the founding of our country, a group of people come over from Britain, set up a colony over here. They want to have a new life. New... And Britain still taxes them. And of course, that's what started the whole revolution was the whole tax thing. Taxes. We're hearing about taxes already in the elections a year away. Even in this day, in Rome, taxes. You remember the story in the Gospels where the religious leaders of Israel are trying to entrap Jesus? Because he claimed to be the Messiah. So in the Jewish mind, the Messiah is going to come and throw over the, the Roman rule and, and set Israel free and, and, and you know, keep them from being under Roman authority. And that wasn't why Jesus came the first time. Jesus came the first time to die for our sins on the cross. He is coming again the second time to overthrow all authority and to set up his earthly kingdom on this earth. But the first time he came, that wasn't what he was all about. So they came and they thought they were going to trap him because they, they said, Jesus, here's a, here's a denarius. It's got uh, Caesar's picture on it. Should we as Jews pay taxes to a heathen Roman government? You're the Messiah, right? So you're surely not going to tell us as Jews that we have to pay taxes to this heathen Roman government, right? And Jesus looks at the coin and he says, give to Caesar what Caesar's, give to God what is God's. And in essence, he just totally subdued their challenge because he was saying, look, it's money. If Rome made the money, give Rome the taxes it's due, but give God his due. And the cool thing that Jesus was implying there is that money may be made in the image of a human government or a human emperor or a human ruler, but human beings are made in the image of God. And no human government has a right to have authority over that person as far as it goes outside the bounds of what God designed government to be about. So that's where he said, hey, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but give to God the things that are God's. So that's why he says, for this reason you also pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants devoted to governing. And, and, and a lot of times that is, you know, it goes for good things. Paying our, our firemen, our policemen, the, the things that we have. Hey, I realize every government has its abuses, it has its excesses, they don't spend all the money that they get right, they don't spend it the way we want, but that doesn't give the Christian the excuse not to pay taxes. God says, hey, pay them anyway, just like he was saying to the Romans, pay your taxes to Rome, be a good citizen, because in learning to live under authority, you're ultimately learning to live under my authority and that's going to define your life, and that's going to keep you in great stead. Something else I did want to point out that I forgot, back down in verse 4, I've told policemen especially, because this really, to me, deals with those who are, you know, out there protecting us and whatever, that I said, especially if I find out that, say, the policeman doesn't know Christ, they don't have a personal relationship with Christ, I say, 
You know, you may call me a minister or a pastor. I said, you're a minister of God too. They, they look at me like, I'm a minister of God? I said, yeah, in Romans 13, 4, it says that people like you, policemen that, you know, protect us and serve in that way, <clears throat> you're God's minister. It sort of takes them back for a moment. But God reminds us of that. They really are ministers, again, in God's stead. So pay everyone, verse 7, what is owed, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. Now, though some officials, as I said, may be corrupt and misuse funds, there are proper channels that exist to address and correct such abuses. And to me, Christians should go through those proper channels and dealing with that kind of stuff. But let me just say this and ending this part and moving on to something a lot more positive. I believe that Jesus Christ is the only one that can clean up the mess that exists in the world today. And only after He comes will a righteous government exist on the earth. And that's why I don't put my faith in human government. I put my God in the God above human government, but who ordained human government for me to live under and to learn how to live under authority. A life defined by God is a life under authority. A life defined by God is also a love life. Notice in verse 8, Owe no man anything except to love one another, for the one who loves his neighbor fulfilled the law. In other words, everything in the law, positive and negative, can be summed up in just loving each other, as he goes on down in verse 9 to say, Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, some people have taken verse 8 to say a Christian should never borrow money or get into debt. That is a misinterpretation of Romans 13.8. In the original Greek language, in fact, the New International Version captures the correct meaning. Let no debt remain outstanding. This just simply means repay all debts. And obviously, that's the honorable thing to do. If I do have a debt, if I do borrow, I should pay it back. That's the honorable, Christ-like, Christ-honoring thing to do, which sort of ties into what he's just said in the first seven verses, but he's saying that's even an extension of love. And, 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 and that love is something that should never wear out, never get old. I should never get to a point where I go, well, I've, I've loved them enough. I don't have to love them anymore. And that's what he's saying about the fact that Love is never going to be that thing that that becomes obsolete in my life. It's always going to be something that I'm obligated to discharge out. And here's the reason why. In the Old Testament, under the law, this same principle was true. Love your neighbor as yourself. The problem was in the Old Testament, there wasn't the power available to truly do that for a lifetime. But now, as we've learned through the book of Romans, because of the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, I have a power available to me to love people the way Christ loves for the rest of my life. And I never have an excuse to go to God and say, God, I I can't love that person anymore. God would say, do you have the Holy Spirit in you? Yeah. Well, then you have the capacity to love. Because Romans 5.5 says God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And we never have an excuse and we never even have to say to God, God, give me more love to love that person. No, because God would say through the Holy Spirit, I've given you the resource to be able to love anybody, anytime, anywhere for the rest of your life. Verse 9, 
Since the essence of love expresses itself in concrete ways, notice he repeats four of the Ten Commandments. Because love really is practical. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not covet. And if there's any other commandment, they're summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And notice he goes on in verse 10 to say, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. That's how we can know whether we're loving or not. Is what I'm doing to someone else wronging them in some way? Or is it building them up? If I'm wronging them, then I'm not loving them. And I wouldn't want somebody to love me that way by wronging me. I I want people to build me up and seek my highest good, which is really what love is in the Bible. Love is seeking another's highest good. That's why Paul says in verse 10, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Why? Because everything in the law, whether it was do this or not do this, was always directed towards don't do wrong to this person, do right by them. Seek their highest good. And that's what biblical Christ-like love is all about. And so the life defined by God is not only a life that's learned to live under authority, it's a life of love. And it's a love that just continues to just pour out of our lives as God you know, loves us. And as w- the realization of God's love, I should say, be- becomes part of our life. And that's really what it is. God loves all of us more than we'll ever know. But where it's hard sometimes for, for others to love others is because it hasn't become real in, in my life. I, I really don't, I really haven't come to understand how much God loves me. And because of that, I have trouble loving others. Because if I truly realized how much God loves me, and the realization of His love for me became so you know, real in my life, then it would motivate me to give my life in love for others. Struggling to love others, probably struggling to accept God's love for you. And so, tonight, I would just say to all of us, open up your heart to God and to the love that He wants to pour out in your life. And begin to receive it. Begin to accept it. And, and, and don't, don't say the lies and don't accept the lies that I'm not worthy of His love and, and all of that and He really doesn't love me and all that. Allow God's love to just overwhelm your life and see what God does in and through your life. And then I love verse 11. Another thing that defines a life by God is living with a sense of urgency. This is my favorite part of this chapter, so we're going to be here for a while. Because notice, to further encourage believers to persevere and to hang in there in love, Paul points to the imminent return of Christ. He says, and do this because we know the time, that it is already the hour for us to awake from sleep, for our salvation is now nearer than when we became believers. I want to go back to that first phrase in verse 11. Paul says, do this. Do what? Love. Love. Because we know the time. Do we know the time? Keep your finger there in Romans and go back to the Gospel of Luke. To Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. Towards the end of the chapter, verse 54. Jesus also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a rainstorm is coming. And it does. 
And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat. And there is. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but how can you not know how to interpret the present time? He was even saying to those who were following him that day, he says, do you really know the time you're living? First of all, the time they were living, I'm st- the Messiah is standing in front of you. Do you know the time? And then for us, back to the book of Romans, do we, do we really know the time? A person who's in fellowship with God and who's allowing God to define their life really understands the time in which we're living and that we need to live in a sense of urgency. That as Esther, that God, you brought me to the earth for such a time as this. And out of all the, the eons and periods of history, God, you, you allowed me to be born at this time in history. I, I think it's the most exciting time ever on planet earth. Oh, it's a hard time. It's, it's not easy at all. But I believe we are living in the last days before Jesus returns. And, and the reason I say it's exciting is because with everything going on around us, that Christians have the greatest opportunity today to really shine their light for Jesus Christ, as we sang about earlier. I, I think the church has an unbelievable opportunity. And I think that's what Paul is saying. He said it a couple thousand years ago. And he says it to us. Do we really know the time? And are we living with a sense of urgency? That it is already the hour for us to awake from sleep. For our salvation is now nearer than when we became believers. In other words, we're one step closer to heaven today than we were yesterday. And if we know the seasons and the times and all of that, we know that we're pretty close to the return of Christ. So, so shouldn't all of this, this stuff motivate us to truly live a life with a sense of urgency? Because the word sleep back in Romans chapter 13 verse 11 is a metaphor used to convey really three things. Moral laxity spiritual lethargy and complacency you know just yeah i'm a christian and going to heaven and part of a wonderful church like cornerstone and come on sunday it's good it's good (laughs) and when you begin to think about the opportunities that are there wow Every day, the people that God allows us to rub up against. And I think it's great how you all and so many others responded to, I believe, the challenge that God had for us way back whenever Pastor Lynn took us through It's an Answer, speaking about this building and this facility. And to me, I kept thinking through that whole thing, we we need to step up because We need to know the time as Christians. And we're not going to have this opportunity forever to reach people for Christ and to build up Christians and have Bible studies and stuff. There's coming a time very soon where we're going to be in heaven and our opportunities to serve Christ and to live for Him and to touch people's lives and to positively affect our culture is going to be gone and it's going to be gone forever. And so Paul is saying here to us, know the time and a life defined by God is one that lives it with a sense of urgency, a sense that what God is moving me to do, I need to do it and I need to do it now. So if God's urging me to get involved more, then get involved more. If God's urging me to have a conversation with somebody, have that conversation. Don't put it off 
one more day. If God's saying hug somebody, then hug somebody. If God's saying, hey, you, you need to have a hard conversation with somebody, have that hard conversation with them. If God's asking you and moving you to share Jesus with somebody, share Jesus with them and don't wait one more day. If God's saying, raise your, your Christian level of commitment up a little bit, do it because guys, we've got to know the time. And we don't have forever. And we shouldn't live as if everything's just going to remain the way it is. Because that's not true, Paul says. And for the Christian that's really in touch with God, they come to understand the urgency of what we've got to do and when we've got to do it. And please, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we've got to you know, leave and, and our lives have to be this you know, run here and run there and totally out of control. Everything we do has to be under the prompting and the leading of the Holy Spirit. All I'm saying is that many times we procrastinate and we put off what we know the Spirit of God is moving and leading us to do. And and all all I'm saying again tonight is, I don't know what that is in your life. I'm not going to play Holy Spirit. But whatever the Holy Spirit is prompting you and urging you to do in your life, I'm just telling you based upon the authority of God's Word, do it and do it now. You need to make a phone call, get home and make that phone call. If you need to make an appointment with somebody and set up a meeting with somebody, set up that meeting as soon as possible. That's what he means by, and do this because we know the time, that the hour for us to awake from sleep You see, the possibility of Christians sleeping and just going through the motions and becoming very spiritually complacent and just putting it on cruise control, it happens all the time. It happens to the best of us. And that's one of the reasons why it's so cool to see so many people on a Tuesday night and and, and ministries, other ministries in our church. Because part of what the dynamic of us coming together is, we sort of encourage each other mutually to just, you know, keep on our toes spiritually and not get comfortable and not get complacent. Because it would be so easy if we were just sort of out there by ourselves, floating by ourselves and and isolated from everybody that soon, even if the most dedicated Christian, soon we're going to come down and just sort of just put it on cruise. And God says, don't do that. That's why God says, don't forsake the assembling of of yourselves together like some do in the book of Hebrews. I mean, come together and man, you couldn't be here at any of the four services on Sunday and not see some people come in here on Sunday every service. I mean, they were just, you, you could see literally with, with body language, this, the change in the whole auditorium on Sunday after every service, like people come in one way and they left another. God says, that's what I want to see happen all the time in our lives. Notice verse 12, because the night is advanced towards dawn and the day is near. So then we must lay aside the works of darkness and put on the weapons of light. You see, one of the things Paul's reminding us is we got to realize, guys, we're in a fight. We're in a battle. Being a Christian is not for, for some, you know, weak, wimpy person. We're, we're, on the, we're called to be on the front lines of this eternal struggle between good and evil and the souls of human beings are on the line every day. And God is saying it's time for the church to awake. It's like a sleeping giant many times. And we've got to wake up and and we've got to recommit ourselves to, to our walk with God and to the impact that God can make through our lives. 
And lay aside those works of darkness and put on the weapons of light. The weapons of light is a common metaphor that describes the equipment a Christian soldier must wear to win the war against evil. Now next semester when we get to the book of Ephesians, we're going to spend a whole chapter on spiritual warfare when we get to Ephesians chapter 6. But before we do that tonight, keep your finger there in Romans again and go over to the book of 2 Corinthians. I want to show you these verses from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, Paul says this, For though we live as human beings, we do not wage war according to human standards. For the weapons of our warfare are not human weapons, but are made powerful by God for tearing down strongholds. That's the Christian equipment. And it's not human equipment. It's not anything of this earth. It's spiritual weapons, which are much more powerful than any earthly weapon we could ever wield. It is the Word of God that's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is prayer. It, it is the church. It is the Holy Spirit. It is our fellowship together. It is so many things that, that are more powerful than anything this earth could ever invent. Because it's on a spiritual level, level, which is higher than a physical level. And God says it's through these spiritual weapons that strongholds can be torn down. You and I have all known that throughout our lives, maybe there's been a stronghold in our life. There's been something that got a hold of our life and it just gripped us and it just wrapped itself around us and, and we couldn't overcome it. And I know the reason why I couldn't overcome some of the strongholds in my life in the past is because I was trying to overcome those strongholds in my life with human weapons, with things of the earth. And it was only when I began to use the weapons that God supplied his word, prayer, and all those things I just mentioned, that those strongholds in my life crumbled under the authority and power of Almighty God because His power and His authority are behind all these weapons. And so God is simply saying to His soldiers, let's rise up. Let's realize the times in which we live. Let's put on that spiritual armor every day. Let's use the weapons that God has given us, knowing how powerful they are, knowing the authority behind them, and knowing that they can bring down any stronghold in my life or anybody else's life. What a promise. There is no stronghold in your life or in anybody else's life that can't be conquered through the power of God and the weapons that God supplies. Back to Romans 13. Verse 13, let us live decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in discord and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to arouse its desires. Notice in verses 13 and 14, basically Paul is saying, lay aside this behavior, put on this behavior. Because God knows something about human beings. We can't have a void in our life or it ends up being filled a lot of times by stuff that's not good for us. And so God says, don't ever leave your life open. If you, if you do lay aside something that, that you know I want you to lay aside, then fill it with something else. And that's why God uses that kind of terminology. And I love this, this language here, putting on the Lord Jesus. 
Well, didn't I put on the Lord Jesus when I believed in him as my savior, as a Christian? Yes, I did. But I also put on the Lord Jesus in this context when not only do I believe in him, but I behave like him. To be clothed with Christ means to have Christ-like behavior or practices. It means that when people look at my life, they go, oh, they talk like Jesus would talk. They behave like Jesus would. They react like Jesus would react. Which is really the reason we came up with the term Christian in the first place. Because the term Christian was actually coined by people who weren't Christians. And it was actually a derogatory term in history. It was a term used by those who weren't Christians. And they would point to somebody walking down and say, that person's a Christian. They remind me of that guy, Jesus Christ. It wasn't some kind of label to be proud of in those days as far as Most people were concerned. It was a put down. And it was only used by those who would label somebody else because their life and their behavior and their language and all of that modeled after Jesus himself. It's a cool picture of literally every day I've got to get up as a Christian and say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to put you on today. Today isn't going to be about me. It's going to be about you and reflecting you to others and allowing you to live out and in and through me. So that other people can see Jesus in my life. And that's why in verse 14 he says, Instead put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to arouse its desires. You see, those those sinful desires are always there and they will always be there. Even the most dedicated, committed Christian will always have those desires. The question is, are we going to let those desires sort of lay dormant? Or are we going to do some things that we know can trigger those desires and can set us off in the wrong direction? And we all know what those triggers are in our life. We all know what those things are that can get us aroused to go back to that kind of behavior. And that's why God says here, the best way to turn away from the flesh's desires is to turn toward the things of God. It's it's not that Jeff Royce or any of you as a Christian who's committed your life to Christ has any less desires to sin or whatever that we ever had. Those desires will be there till the day that this human body is laid in the grave. But hopefully what we have done over the years is to fill our life with all the good things that God has for us to do and to focus on all the things that God wants us to do to the point where we don't have time or energy to focus on those other things. And if they start to rear their ugly head a little bit, we just, we just get our eyes on Jesus and we just focus on what we know we need to do and what we should be doing. God says that's the best remedy to keep those desires dormant and not get them aroused because they're always there and they'll always be there. A life defined by God is a life learned to live under His authority It's a life of love. It's also a life of urgency. It's it's a life that realizes, you know what? I'm not going to be around forever. And I need to make every day count for Jesus Christ. And whatever the Spirit of God is urging me to do, I just need to be obedient and just need to follow through with it and not put it off another day. And a life defined by God is one that puts on the Lord Jesus Christ every day. And makes no provision for the flesh. All right, we've got a few minutes to answer some questions or to 
have some comments. And we've got some microphones up here. So raise your hand. We'll attempt to. Anyone at all. Back here. That's in Ephesians chapter 6. Yeah, that's the spiritual armor of God that's listed there in uh, Ephesians chapter 6. And it's, well, it, it's Christ-like behavior. I was more connecting the spiritual armor in Ephesians 6 to the weapons of light in chapter 13, verse 12. Okay, thanks. I get yeah. Good question. And if you come back next semester and we study the book of Ephesians, we'll go through all that. I just wanted to make a comment about submitting to authority. That's extremely important and relevant. The other aspect to that, as far as our government is concerned, is our influence on our government. As Christians, we really do need to take a part in influencing our government. So just thought I'd make that um, no, That's a great point. And, and that... You know, you see that in the Bible. I mean, you see Joseph and how God, in the book of Genesis, how God used Joseph, one man, to influence at that time in history the nation of Egypt, the most powerful world power at that point, and Pharaoh. And, and Joseph was the second most powerful person on earth at that point underneath Pharaoh and how God used him to influence that government. And then later on in the book of Daniel, a book that we're studying on Sunday morning, you see how Daniel and his friends in exile in Babylon are used to influence, at that point in history, the world's most powerful empire. God has his people in places, and God has his people in governments, and yeah, I think we do need to be a part of the political process. I think that's an important point, and we, we must not forget that. I just want to make sure that we don't go too far the other way, like I said, to the extreme where we're looking at government as our Savior. Jesus Christ is my Savior, not human government. And, and, and human government is never going to figure everything out and never going to figure out the mess that the world's in and, and be able to usher you know, in the kingdom at that point. Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth and He's going to take care of all that. That's what we need to remember as well. Uh, Jeff, if, uh, can you sort of explain the difference between uh, listening to your conscience and listening to the Holy Spirit? Or is there a difference? Or Well, th yeah, I, I think that the difference simply is that we've got to remember a couple of things. The conscience is something that every human being has, whether they're a Christian or not. It's something that God gives every human being so that no human being can say, well, I didn't know the difference between right or wrong. God would say, I, I gave you a conscience. For the, for the Christian, we have a double help in the sense that we've not only got our conscience to guide us, but we do have the Holy Spirit. I think that the difference, though, needs to be that I, I do have to understand this, that my conscience and the interpretation of my conscience is fallible, compared to the Holy Spirit. So God says, listen to your conscience, but don't let your conscience be the final authority. Let me, God, be the final authority. And if I, if I could just follow up with that, because I think there's a passage that I'm thinking of, actually, that I talked to the ladies about in the women's Bible study on Wednesday morning. If you go over to 1 John chapter 3, I think John talks about this. 
In John, 1 John chapter 3, John talks about our conscience condemning us. And the fact that God is greater than our conscience and knows all things. And I think what John is simply saying there is there's times in our life where because our conscience is fallible, it's not infallible, that our conscience is going to bother us about something that it really shouldn't be bothering us about. In other words, it could be, it could be, make, it could be making me feel guilty about something that I really shouldn't feel guilty about that God has said, don't feel guilty about that. Either... I've forgiven you for that, that's past, that's done, or that wasn't your responsibility or whatever. And where our conscience can maybe bother us about something, and, and in the presence of God and through fellowship with God and through, again, letting God ultimately be the one that defines my life, the Bible says in 1 John 3.20, God is greater than our conscience and knows all things. And I think what John is simply saying there is, there, there might be a few times in my life where my conscience is bothering me, But when I get with God, God says, get rid of that. Get rid of that guilt. Get rid of that feeling. Get get rid of that because your conscience may be bothering you, but your conscience may be being stirred up by someone or something else, and it's it's not infallible like the Holy Spirit is. So I think 1 John 3.20 is a great, great verse for that. But that's a great question. Anything else? Down here, and then back there first, or down, yeah, right down front here, Pete. Right here, right here. Yeah, I think you were talking in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 3, 4, at the last part when you were saying about our desires when we wake up every day. And I think verse 5 is, is what we need to really concentrate on, is that, that when those desires start to take us over, to take those thoughts captive mm. and to turn them over to the obedience of Christ. Yeah. In fact, that's one of the reasons why, if you've been around me for any length of time, you know that outside of reading the Bible, probably a book that I recommend anybody reading uh, is the book Telling Yourself the Truth that we have in our bookstore right here. Uh, And it goes along with that. It's like how many times lies and, and things that aren't true, either we're being fed by somebody else, we're feeding ourselves, or Satan, the father of lies, is feeding us. And how we've got to learn to identify those lies or those desires. And we've got to quickly push them out of our mind and replace them with the truth of God. And that's why Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Because if I'm living my life by a lie or on a lie or on the foundation of a lie, my life is going to reflect that. But if I'm living by the truth, I'm truly enjoying the freedom that God has for me. Yeah. Good stuff. Anyone else? All right. Well, why don't we close in a word of prayer? Can I just say, guys, thank you. I, I don't know how else to say that, but thank you for being here. No, I, um, it's just an incredible testimony. In, in our staff meeting, our staff, the whole church staff meets on Tuesday mornings here. And every Tuesday, I sort of give them an update about what's happening on Tuesday night and how many people are coming and stuff. And I mean, the whole room just breaks out in applause every time. And and they're just so thrilled to see so many people coming out on Tuesday night studying the Word of God. I mean, from Pastor Lynn on down, everybody on staff is excited to see what's happening here. And it's an encouraging thing. And I just hope that it just continues to just spread and grow because there's nothing better than you know, to me than seeing Christians just getting into the Word of God and let's study this together. And it's, you know, it's not easy all the time, but I think God uses it. And you just hang in there 
And I think God's going to use it to continue to encourage you. And, and that's what this is ultimately about. Yes. 323. Great. We have, uh, ever since we've came, come into the auditorium, we've grown each week for, for about 25, 30 new people. And what's cool is I look around and I know there's about 30 to 40 people who normally are here, who for whatever reason, traveling or whatever, they're not here. It's just really cool. I mean, I'll just share with you, my goal is by Easter, by Easter of next year, I would love to see 500 people here on Tuesday night. That's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm not. And listen, it's not for numbers sake. It's for the fact that that many people are making it a priority to study the word of God every week. That's that's what it's all about, because I know that how much the word of God and the study of the word of God has benefited my life. And I just want to pass that on to others and encourage you as you get into the Word of God and grow in your understanding and study it. That's what it's all about. And I get no greater pleasure than, than doing it. And you guys are just such an encouragement to me. Don't forget that just by you being here, I might not even know your name. <laughs> you may pass me, hey, Pastor Jeff. And I go, hi. You know, don't know who you are. But, and, but, but I want you to know that you being here, looking out and, and getting to know a lot of you and most of you, you guys are such an encouragement. And I hope that we can get to know a lot of you here that come on Tuesday night, you know, I want to be your pastor uh, as much as I possibly can be, not just your teacher on Tuesday night, but if I can encourage you in any way in your walk with God and studying the word of God, that's what they brought me here at Cornerstone to do. This is what I've been doing for 23 plus years ever since I got into the ministry. And I want to continue to do it here at Cornerstone as long as the Lord has me here. All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much for the word. And Lord, thank you for just reminding us of these principles, Lord, to live by. And Lord, every week we just know how practical it is. And, and Lord, it's not necessarily easy. Lord, many times it's very, very difficult to live under authority, uh, especially authority that we think, Lord, is just, you know, shouldn't even be there. But Lord, remind us that you have a purpose. Uh, you have a plan and Lord, that you may be using those authorities over us to shape us, to strengthen us, to, to maybe even use us to reach them or reach someone else there, Lord. And that it's not always about us and how it affects us, but it's how it affects the kingdom and it, how, it, how it affects Jesus. So Lord, just help us to live under authority. Help us to love as you love us. Help us, Lord, to live with a sense of urgency and help us to put on the Lord Jesus every day. God, go with us from this place. Continue to excite us about being a Christian, about, Lord, using our lives to touch other people's lives. And Lord, whatever your spirit is is urging us and prompting us to do, God, just may we have that sense of urgency to do it and to do it as quickly as possible to do it now and not put it off another day. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Guys, have a great week and I'll see you next week.